Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God. His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. Thank you to the generous underwriters of Sharper Iron, the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. And Luther Classical College, a college for Lutherans by Lutherans, opening in fall 2025. Learn more at lutherclassical.org. On this Tuesday, May 2nd, we're studying 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 to 12. In today's text, St. John comforts us that we have been born into the family of God through faith in Jesus Christ, and we can be confident in the testimony that we have received concerning Jesus. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us the Reverend Dr. Jacob Corzine. Dr. Corzine serves as Associate Professor of Theology at Concordia University, Chicago. He is also serving there as the Interim Dean of the College of Theology, Arts, and Humanities. Dr. Corzine, welcome to Sharper Iron. Thank you for having me on the show. As we get started today, Dr. Corzine, help us with some context. We are starting 1 John chapter 5 today. What shall we know about the epistle, what John's been talking about, that'll help us into today's text? Sure. Um, I think there are a few things to note out of the gate about the epistle. And the one that I'm going to emphasize is the way that John is weaving together a number of concepts and it feels like he is circling instead of sort of driving at a particular point. You can sort of, if you look at, for example, Paul's epistles, Romans or Galatians, you really see a trajectory across the epistle. And with John, it's more like he is, he has a core and he is spiraling around it, sort of building up higher and higher, but returning again to the same and same point. So those few different points. I would say there, one is the love of the Christian, uh, especially toward the fellow Christian. Another is faith. Another that we see, especially in our text today, um, we see all of these in our text today, but this one particularly here, as opposed to less, a little bit less in the rest of the epistle, the testimony of the Holy Spirit, then the obedience to God's commandments, and then something that the epistle starts with and also comes back very strongly now, we're close to the end of the epistle the incarnation of Christ. And so you have all of these things that John sort of bounces from one to the next to the next, and then back around to the first one and around again. And he's building up what you can see. Um, if I can give you a different, a different metaphor, um, you can see a tapestry forming mm. and you can grab any one of these threads and sort of follow it all the way through. You can follow how he talks about faith through the epistle or how he talks about love through the epistle. But if you just grab one, then you don't get the whole picture of what he's describing. And I think there is a, a certain, uh, a certain risk involved in that. You could say it this way, right? We, uh, especially when he talks about keeping the commandments, we'll have that in the text today, but that we as sinners have a tendency to see an opportunity to keep some commandments and to build our righteousness, which means our standing before God out of that. And so it's really tempting to pull out one of these threads and go, look, First John is about um, the love of the neighbor or the keeping of God's commandments and sort of set aside how often he comes back to the forgiveness of sins, faith in Jesus Christ, the confession that Christ is the son of God. And so in First John, we're sort of, we're dealing with this tapestry and it's nice that many of these things come together in the pericope that we have this morning. Um, I like the image of a, a tapestry and, and the thought of pulling one on one thread, but not losing all the other ones. I, th I think that's a helpful image for this epistle, because as you said, he does keep coming back to these threads time and time again and weaving them together in new or different ways, or sometimes in the ways that he's, he's said already, but he is painting that, that beautiful picture of the life of the Christian. So we've got several of those threads in our text today. One of the, the things I think it would be helpful to think about with this text as we look at those threads that John weaves together, how do we see this this text particularly within the life of the church in the church year? So this is an interesting thing we were just talking about in a little bit. The um, So one of the things that I, I did sometimes I do when I'm doing this kind of study is go back and read a sermon that Luther wrote on it. And we have one 
and it's for uh, what he calls Weisse Sonntag or White Sunday, which you would very quickly get into English as the familiar term Whit Sunday. The interesting thing is that it's not for Pentecost, which is normally when we think of Whit Sunday. Um, it's actually for the second Sunday after Easter. And there are a couple of things that then play into this that make it interesting. Um, the reason that it, he is calling the second Sunday after Easter basically Whit Sunday or the Sunday in white is that is the tradition of baptizing at Easter vigil. And then the newly baptized Christians wearing the white robes that they receive at their baptism, the sign of um, innocence and uh, by virtue of that in, in Christian uh, theology, then new life and all, all of that that sort of goes together with becoming a Christian. They wear that that whole week and that second Sunday, so the Sunday after Easter, uh, would be the last Sunday when they would still be in white. And it was called then the Dominica in Albis, which is the Sunday in white. And Luther calls it basically Whit Sunday. But then that tradition gets sort of, there's a sort of a fallback date for that day where you do new baptisms, which is Pentecost. And today we call Pentecost, we don't, but we sometimes, we have a tradition of calling Pentecost Whit Sunday. But this epistle is actually for the Sunday after Easter and has uh, shares some of that. What's interesting about that then is that that's a reminder that the church understands the language we get later in this pericope uh, about the spirit and the water and the blood as language, at least the water part, especially about baptism. Hmm. Okay, so within the, the liturgical use of this text, we can see a way to, to go th with some of those things that we're going to talk about today, the water, the spirit, the blood. We're going to see a connection to baptism that the church has seen by using this on the second Sunday of Easter, connecting it to baptism. We are in 1 John 5 this morning, starting at verse 1. I will read the text. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater, for this is the testimony of God, that he has borne concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony, that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. That is our text for today. That is 1 John 5, verses 1 to 12. So, Dr. Corzine, let's start pulling on some of those threads that John is weaving together. I think you, you said one of them was the, the thread of faith. And John talks about faith in that first verse of our text. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. So, let's, let's pull on that thread of faith there in the first verse. Sure. Uh, that's a... That's a really good place. Well, it's the beginning, so it's a good place to start. But we do find very much that uh, John talks about faith. He, uh, he uses either the, the, the verb for faith, which is to believe, right? So something gets obscured a little bit in our English, which is that whether he's saying to believe or saying faith, he's sort of, he's bringing the same word back and back and back again. And um, the content of the faith is really interesting for John. Because if you ask, if you ask a Christian, what is the content of the Christian faith? I mean, you're going to get a variety of answers uh, that are all correct. You're going to get a, a really sort of a wide, even you ask Lutheran pastors, I think, what is the content of the Christian faith? You get 15 words or John's using eight or something here. Wow. You're going to get a variety of answers that all talk about Christ and forgiveness, right? Um, what John says is that it is that Jesus Christ is the son of God, right? Which is that's only very, very mild change from being born of God, right? It's really the same thing. And this, this is a little bit the context, right? That John is clearly dealing with uh, people who 
have no difficulty at all acknowledging that Jesus Christ was a man who lived and died and perhaps even rose from the dead, uh, but he's a man. And now he's saying the content of the Christian faith is the belief that he's not just this man who may, who may perhaps God raised up, but truly the pre-incarnate Son of God and the second person of the Trinity, which means that when we confess an eternal God, for example, we're confessing also the eternity of this person, Jesus Christ. And so he's setting that right out in the front of this sort of maybe this first chapter. It's, you know, he's deep into the epistle at this point. But the content of the faith is the, the teaching that Jesus Christ is not only true man, but also true God. And I think mm. you get that actually all through First John. And First John becomes suddenly you realize this wonderful place to go to talk about how Christians don't just confess that Jesus is a good person or a moral example or a wise teacher, but um, something that someone who exceeds all of those sort of mild praises because he's God himself. Mm. And that's the starting point. That's the content of the Christian faith for John. Yeah, and, and just that the thread here that Jesus is the son of God, that he truly is God, in this chapter, it really does come through very clearly. And this is one of those places that I don't know that I always think about when I when I think about the scripture passages that teach Jesus is God. John chapter one, the gospel, that's one place that I, I always run to. And there's other places in, in John's gospel as well. But to see that same theme come up here in 1 John 5, there's several texts here, as you've been saying, that reveal this truth, that teach this truth, that Jesus truly is the Son of God. This is the content of our Christian faith. John, in the first verse, also gives us another one of those threads that he's been weaving into this tapestry. Those who believe this content, they are those who are born of God. So they are a part of this family of God. Jesus is a part of it as the Son of God. We are then born into it. Talk about that birth that brings us into the family of God. Right. So this is, there are, there are a ton of threads to pull right here. So the one that you bring up is... Uh, we have other language in the scriptures and other places of our adoption as sons. And here, that's just assumed, right? Um, those who love the Father, um, let me just read it so I can orient myself. Everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. Okay. And so first we know that the born of him is Jesus Christ. Yeah. But then in the next verse, and I'm going to jump forward just to grab that. And he talks about the children of God, and that's the reminder that we're not just talking about Christ as the Son of God, but now also through him and through faith, uh, all believers in Christ as the sons and daughters, as the children of God, right? And then this is where the, um, the I, I, I give you two, two options, two images before, the, the tapestry and the spiral. And this is where I, I like to, to come to the spiral, because now he's starting to circle. So you have the faith in Jesus Christ, and now you have the love of the Father and the love of the fellow Christian, right? Those who have been born of him. And so he's starting to circle, um, and he will come, he will swing all the way back around to the faith again. Um, but we see, uh, this is the, the picture that I would want you to get, or the, um, the concept, but I think it's important for the listeners to understand. Um, it's, in my classes, I just use the word, it's the concomitants of gifts. Um, which is a big word I write it on the board, um, and we don't ever use it in any other place, and that's what I really mean by big. Um, but what it is is there are all these gifts that come with the Christian faith and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that come at the same time, right? Our forgiveness, our um, inheritance in heaven, our adoption as sons of God, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the faith that sustains us, the freedom of conscience, um, the new relationship to the law. All of these things are true for the Christian at the same time, but they aren't all the same thing. Is it? I'm sure that's making sense to you, right? They're not all saying that I'm free from the condemnation of the law. It's not the same thing as saying that I have an inheritance in heaven. Both things are true and you can't have one without the other, but they're not the same thing. And so John is giving us the full picture of the Christian by circling around all of these things and showing their sort of interdependent relationship to one another. Hmm. So that's, you're calling that the concomitants of gifts. Did I catch that right? That's right. Okay. So all these gifts come to the Christian at the same time. They're not the same thing. John is giving us that full picture, that tapestry. He circles back around to the things that he's talked about before to paint that picture, to weave that tapestry for us. So 
everyone who believes, there's faith that Jesus is the Christ, has been born of God. There's that new birth. And then John weaves into the tapestry yet again the thought of love, which you've touched on. He says, everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. So start start us on that thread, the thread of love, both for the Father and then also those born of, of him. So if you've got him circling and sort of holding up all of these things at the same time, here you see one of the places where he simply equates two things. He says, if a person loves God, then he loves the children of God. And it's almost, and this is where you have to kind of cautiously walk forward with John. It's almost like he's setting up a test. If you want to know if you love God, look to see if you love the children of God. And now we could quickly jump to the fact that we're going to fail this test, but I would suggest we hold it for a couple of verses and just allow that to be um, part of John's description of what the Christian life looks like. So the Christian is a lover of God by sort of by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So by definition, and it's hard to see that in yourself. So look to see if you love the children of God. Um, and then I would say, I would add to that, look to see if you love Christ because he is the firstborn of the children. And that's all sort of packed into verse one. Hmm. So by this, then in verse two, by this, we know that we love the children of God that we love God and obey his commandments. So you said, we're going to let this test stand that John gives us. And now he, he starts talking more about this, knowing that we love the children of God. He connects it to loving God and obeying his commandments. So keep, keep going with this thread of the love that we have for the children of God that shows our love for God. He now says obeying commandments. Here's more, more uncomfortable language for Lutherans, it seems. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you can certainly say that. I think um, we... We say it's uncomfortable language for Lutherans because we've learned a really healthy relationship to the law, I would say. Um, can I make a digression into the confessions for a second? Is that okay? Oh, of course. Yes. So when in the Apology to the Oxford Confession, Melanchthon is correcting the, uh, the, the denying the legitimacy of creating all kinds of human laws by which a person might become more righteous, right? If you fast on the right days, you become more righteous. If you join a monastery and are celibate and poor, you become more righteous. Um, if you separate yourselves from society, you become more righteous. If you refuse to hold political office or you share your money in common with everyone else, you become more righteous. Um, he on the one hand, takes these things and says, these are not given by God, therefore they can't provide for more righteousness, so we shouldn't be doing them. On the other hand, he says, some of these things have sort of neutral value. It's like when Luther says in the Catechism, fasting and bodily preparation are fine outward training, uh, referring to the Lord's Supper, right? The fine outward training, but Luther's certainly not commanding them in the Catechism. And what Melanchthon then warns of is what he calls in one place and has sort of established itself as the language, the opinio legis, uh, the best translation of this is really the, the legalistic bias, which is to say that the sinner has a, by virtue of original sin, this inborn tendency to look for rules and think that's how I'm going to get more righteous. And that stands sharply at odds with the teaching that we uphold, the teaching of the scriptures and the confessions that, and especially formulated in then, for example, the Oxford Confession, that salvation or righteousness is a matter of faith alone. And then the big fight uh, that we have as we, with ourselves, as we read a text like this, is we see an opportunity to fall back into our legalistic bias and look for righteousness by our works. Okay. Hmm. Now, nevertheless, we have the text and obey his commandment. And so my counsel here is to go back to 1 John 2, uh, verses 7 and 8, where he says, Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. Okay, so this is really fun. He's saying, I mean, this is where the other place is talking about commandments. And he's saying, it's, it's not a new thing. It's the, the old commandment. But then he goes on. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you which is true in him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. So this is sort of the, the commandment. This is the same as the old commandment, but it's not the same as the old commandment. Um, mm -hmm. And I think the way to think about this is imagine you have two identical cars 
next to one another on a car lot. They are the same car, but of course they're not the same car, right? You know that one is going to go to Ohio and the other one's going to stay in Chicago, something like that, right? They're not the same car, but they're both brand new blue Honda Accords with the same equipping, right? So they're the same car. And so our commandment is at the same time, or let's say it this way, the commandment that the Christian receives is at the same time the same as the commandments that the Old Testament believer received, the Ten Commandments, but it's also not the same. It's a new commandment for the Christian. And then he gives us the clue about how that works. Still in First John 2, um, it's true in him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. And that aligns, if I bring us back to 1 John 5, with what we get in verse 3, and his commandments are not burdensome. Because the Christian mm. has a totally oh. new relationship to God's commandments, which is, uh, they are an invitation and a guide for serving the neighbor and thereby serving God, but they aren't the burdensome path to righteousness by which we become pleasing to Because that's all mm. my faith in Jesus Christ. So to keep going straight into verse 3 then, and keep keep going with the thread of the commandments, this is the love of God now in verse 3, that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. Again, that that may strike us as strange as Lutherans, that the commandments are not burdensome. It's, I thought it was hard to keep God's law. I don't, I don't like to keep God's law as a sinner. How is it that John says the commandments are not burdensome? That's because you don't like to keep God's law. So, so you're you're not just a sinner. You're a perfectly righteous Christian, right? And um, you're, what you are is you're mixed on whether you like to try to keep God's law or you don't like to try to keep God's law. The reason that we can talk about the commandments as being burdensome or not burdensome um, and sort of both at the same time is that we know ourselves to be sinners and saints at the same time. And as sinners, we're faced with, um, as 100% sinners, um, the part of us that's dying away because we are Christians and it's being put to death in baptism and repentance. Um, there we're still faced with the law that we cannot fulfill and really despise, but that forces itself on us. And that uh, you have to strain for righteousness. And it's always a strain because the, the bar is inevitably too high in every sort of domain where you might think about that. So if you're just going to become righteous according to the, um, the fifth commandment, and you're really going to um, help your neighbor in every bodily need. And even if you just take that one, you'll discover that's incredibly burdensome if that's your path to righteousness. But John's assumption is that he's addressing people who um, have a new relationship to the commandment because of faith in Christ and a new relationship to their neighbor because of their faith in Christ or a new relationship to God because of their faith in Christ. And the key there is that for the most part, our love to God is expressed in vocation through love to our neighbor. And then the question is, how do I serve my neighbor? And the answer is uh, in the context of vocation with the commandments. And then the question, why are they not burdensome anymore? It's because you don't need anything when you, um, when you are fulfilling the commandments to serve your neighbor, because you already have everything through faith in Christ. And so now, um, your fulfilling of the commandments is, um, uh, what's the word? It's, that's your free time. That's what you do in your time off on your vacation, because that's the life that you live as a Christian. All the work is done. Everything is provided for. So now you've got some extra good works to spend. Let's say it that way, because all of your good works are only good for your neighbor. They do nothing for you if you already have Christ. So the burden of trying to accomplish something through it is gone. That's a that's a fantastic perspective that St. John gives us on the commandments not being burdensome. We have everything that we need in Christ, so our good works are now for our neighbor. They become a, a vacation. I like that. I like that idea. So his commandments are not burdensome. And then he continues into, into language that I think we maybe resonate with a little bit more with, with Lutherans, but it, it really fits into the flow that you've, you've given us. In verse 4, everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? 
So we've got the threads of faith and being born again. Now John weaves in some language that, that we do see elsewhere in his writings, the thought of victory or overcoming. Pull on that thread now. I want to pull on that thread with Luther because I, um, I, I, can't, I can't offer something better than what he does there. When he talks, when he thinks about the world in this passage, um, I think there are two ways you can approach this, right? The one way would be to think about how the world that is set against us um, and makes life for us sort of day by day harder and harder um, needs to be overcome. And that's not what he does. Instead, you have the world, sort of the way that he talks about the world in the large catechism on the sixth petition, that you have the devil, the world, and our sinful nature all trying to draw us into sin and away from faith in Christ. And so here in 1 John 5, when he works on this, the world has, um, the world tries to draw you into sin and by faith in Christ, that, uh, that influence of the world is sort of, is, is rendered meaningless. The world loses its ability to draw you into sin. And that's the power of faith. And they sort of elevate the power of faith in Christ and the change that that produces in the believer um, and as a victory, right? And so the world, you know, maybe it's a little bit like the sinner in you continues to exist until Christ returns right? Um, but his power is gone, right? In the same way, the world, as we see it, filled with sin and trouble and um, hatred and opposition toward Christianity, it doesn't go away. But its ability to destroy the Christian's faith, and therefore its ability to destroy the Christian's good life, and by that I mean the life that is uh, serving the neighbor through the commandments also is is uh, done away. Mm -hmm. This is fantastic good news that St. John gives us here in 1 John chapter 5. We're going to pick up more of the text on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron on KFUO. We're talking to Dr. Jacob Corzine this morning. We will be right back. Please stick around. Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Tuesday, May 2nd. We are studying 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 to 12 with Dr. Jacob Corzine. He serves as Associate Professor of Theology at Concordia University in Chicago, and he is also the Interim Dean of the College of Theology, Arts, and Humanities there. Dr. Corzine, prior to the break, we were looking at verses 4 and 5 of our text where John talks about our faith overcoming the world. Could you clarify that a little bit more, what it means that it is our faith that overcomes the world? Jesus says that he's overcome the world in John chapter 16. Now we find out that our faith overcomes the world. How do those two things go together? Right. That's a great question um, because it's very easy uh, to fall into a, a language today that talks about faith where that faith doesn't have any specific content. and we observe every day. I mean, I think of it this way sometimes, like Christians have a really good way of dealing with managing life in the world by their faith in Jesus Christ. There are lots of other people around who are not Christians who are actually doing a really good job getting through life in the world, right? And uh, so then they, um, they have sort of coping mechanisms that work for the moment, but what they don't do is actually overcome the world. Okay. Mm -hmm. So then the Christian has faith. But what John gives us here is not just faith. That's what, if you stopped at verse four, maybe you could argue that that's what you have. But verse five says, who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes, who faiths, right? 
that Jesus is the son of God. And so now he's again come back and put that same content that he has at the beginning of First John chapter 5, put that same content in again, that it's not any faith, but it's the faith that that man that we heard about who preached and who uh, was condemned and suffered and died on the cross and about whom they say he rose from the dead, that man is not just a man, but is the son of God. And then if you sort of operate just a little bit with a sort of a, a dichotomy of God and the world, then um, where um, the Christian orients himself perhaps by one or the other, well, then you see that God has reached in and defeated, overcome, made himself victorious over the world through this son of God, Jesus Christ. And by faith, maybe this is okay to say, by faith, we orient ourselves there on Jesus Christ, whom on the one hand, we can, we can see yeah, because he was, he was part of this world in every way that we are. And on the other hand, uh, by the, the divine power that he possesses overcame the world. Um, so, I mean, that's the, that's the key, right? Is that we don't ever separate faith from its content. We don't ever just yeah. talk about a leap of faith or something like that, but it's faith in Jesus Christ. And if we go with John here. Faith in Jesus Christ being the Son mm. of God. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay, don't separate faith from this content. John has been preaching that content of the faith throughout this epistle. And I think that connects into what he's going to say next, then in the verse six, and as he starts talking about who this Jesus, the Son of God, the Christ, who he is, and the testimony that's about that we have about him. Now he in verse six he says, This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only but by the water and the blood. Now, I'm not sure, there, I mean, we've been talking about threads that John has been weaving together here. This thread of water and blood, I remember John talking about the blood of Jesus cleansing us from sin in chapter one. I don't know that I've seen too much of the thread of water in the epistle. What's going on here in verse six? What's the, the water and blood that Jesus came by? So the one thing you can do is reach way out and pick up the thread from John's gospel, 19 verse 34. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and at once there came out blood and water, right? So that you do have these two connected together and think there are a couple, a couple of things that, that are important to do here. It's hard to read this passage the way that um, I think we should if you don't operate with a, a pretty robust understanding of baptism, and we'll see a pretty robust understanding of the Lord's Supper, but I'm going to try and bridge that for you as best as I can so that someone who's a little skeptical can see how we get there. Um, so water is language that you find through the New Testament very, very regularly connected with baptism. That actually, I think, is not that big of a reach. Um, what's interesting is that in order to get um, to an understanding of baptism that is regenerative and salvific and really affirms what you have in, in first Peter, where it says this water symbolizes bap baptism, which now saves you, right? A real baptism as new, the, the giving of new life by God to the sinner, right? Um, in order to get there, you have to have under some understanding that that water is not just plain water, right? And so Luther will say it's not just plain water, but it's water including God's command and combined with God's word. Um, you can also talk about it as the washing of regeneration, renewal in the Holy Spirit. All of that happens, though, because we are ultimately washed in the blood of the Lamb, the blood that was sacrificed for us on the cross. And so you draw in the John 19.34, the water and blood, that's the, that's the water together with the blood that was sacrificed for our sins. And um, we are washed in the blood of Christ in baptism. That's not a reach to say. It doesn't mean that the water turns into blood or anything like that, um, but that it's the blood of Jesus Christ that gives the power by which baptism creates the righteous children of God out of sinners. And so here, right, sort of right out of the gate here, you see the water and the blood be, be, belong together because if, if baptism is just a ritual washing, then it meaningless. It has to have the blood of Christ sort of backing it as the uh, the means of our redemption, and which I think is why he says not by water only, but by the water and the blood, 
right? It's not the baptism of John or baptism for repentance. Um, it's a baptism of new life. Comes only through the loss of Christ's life on the cross. So when, when John says that Jesus came by water and blood, then it, would it be fair to say that he's, he speaks about that historically in the sense that Jesus truly came by water and blood. He is the one who was crucified. His side was pierced. Water and blood flowed out. So he came in that way historically, but then that he also comes by water and blood in the gifts that we're talking about, holy baptism, the sacrament of the altar. Both of those things are in view here, do you think? I think so. I think you get it a little more clearly down in verse eight, where it says spirit, water, and blood, then you can sort of pull the three together. But the, the important thing to remember with, uh, when you talk about the blood then is that you, blood of Christ certainly doesn't stay on the cross. Um, because Christ rose from the dead, right? He's not on the cross anymore. He's not right. just the crucified, he's crucified and risen, still alive today. He ascended into heaven, right? So that, so then where, where again is the blood, right? Well, in the Lord's, Christ comes with his blood to us actually. So that if you have talk of the blood of Christ in the Bible, it's always right to think about the Lord's supper, um, because that's, that is the blood of Christ. That's the blood that was sacrificed, that was shed, spilled for you. And so, um. It's not about a, some kind of big exegetical, mystagogical leap to say, ah, oh, blood, that must mean the Lord's Supper. The blood of Jesus always means the Lord's Supper. Oh, your tester. Because I love it. I love it. It's the blood of Jesus, right? Yes, that's all. right. The blood. Yeah, the blood of Jesus that cleanses us from sin, as John has already told us. So we've got the water, the blood, and then John adds that the Spirit is the one who testifies as the truth. And then he, he connects the three testifying together, agreeing, spirit, water, blood. Bring the spirit into this discussion and the idea of the testimony that's here. All right, so there are two things going on. With the spirit, I'm inclined to go to John 20, um, where Jesus says, to the, it's his, uh, Jesus breathed on the disciples and said, receive the Holy Spirit. All right, there's the spirit coming to the disciples. And then what he says right after that, if you forgive anyone's sins, they are forgiven. If you retain anyone's sins, they are retained. And in doing that, he sends the disciples out to go proclaim the forgiveness of sins, right? And we will use this as a passage, as this so-called institution narrative for, um, for the office of the keys, and rightly so. Um, but what you have in the sort of slightly, if you take just a half step away to get a bigger picture from that, what you have there is that the spirit and um, the spirit works through the ministry of the gospel, right? And this is, if I can give you one more confessions passage, just open to it. Go for it. Augs Augsburg Confession, Article 5. So Article 4 uh, concludes by talking about the faith that is reckoned by God as righteousness. And then Article 5 goes like this, to obtain such faith, because that's the big question. If faith is the path to righteousness and not love, not the law, how do we get that faith? To obtain such faith, God instituted the office of preaching, giving the gospel and the sacraments. Through these, as through means, he gives the Holy Spirit who produces faith where and when he wills in those who hear the gospel. There's only one more line there, but that's enough. So the Holy Spirit yeah, is, is the one at work through the administration of the sacraments, baptism, and the Lord's Supper, certainly, but also through the proclamation of the forgiveness of sins. And so it's really easy for, for me, I think, to look here and see the, um, the ministry of the gospel that is carried out by, by, um, pastors, missionaries in the church that, it, that has three focuses, the proclamation, that's the spirit, right? Baptizing, that's the water, and administering the Lord's Supper, giving people the body and blood of Jesus Christ for their forgiveness, that's the blood. And this together composes the testimony of the Christian faith by which people are saved. And mm. they all agree. That's right. And these three agree. These three. Mm. 
So, so thinking testimony is really how you get there. Well, it's by this testimony, you get to this faith that, uh, produces the Christian described in verses one to five, something like that. Okay. Yeah. So, so as, or to, to use like Paul's terms in Romans chapter 10, how can they, how can they believe unless they hear? That's, that's kind of what John's giving us here. How does that faith, the, which content is Jesus is the son of God. And then it, that faith flows forth in love. How does that come about? It comes through the testimony that is given by spirit, water, and blood that agree pointing toward Jesus as the crucified, risen, ascended savior. This is what John's getting at. You, you've brought up the confessions a couple times, and, and as you were talking there, just another thought from the confessions, you know, the confessions speak against what's called enthusiasm, which in this case means you know, that the thought that the spirit comes to us outside of the word of God, outside of the means of grace. Would, would this be a passage that we could turn to, to, to show that John is not an enthusiast, that he is pointing to the spirit that God comes to us in these very objective means? Yeah, I very much think so. I mean, it's, it's a place where you have to do a little bit of backfilling, uh, in terms of context and understanding what John is doing, um, to then make that case. Like, I mean, if it, to me, the sort of naturally skeptical reader, if I see spirit, water, and blood, and then you raise your hand and say, that's, that's preaching baptism in the Lord's Supper. I say, you didn't read carefully enough. <laughs> but as I sort of worked through that with that skepticism, I really, that really strikes me as, uh, as the right way to read this passage. And then you, it sort of, it fits it into the whole, um, context of the Christian faith and the Christian proclamation, which is that, I mean, it, John has a very narrow understanding here of what the Christian proclamation is. It's the proclamation that Jesus Christ is the son of God, right? That's specific content. And John is one of these people on whom Christ breathed and said, receive the Holy Spirit, go proclaim this. So I very much think that this is an important passage to turn to along with a lot of conversation with someone. Um, sure. to sort of keep that enthusiast, um, the other word they, they'll use is fanatical, um, expectation of the Holy Spirit sort of, um, waving in the wind or waiting around any corner, um, to have that conversation sort of reel that in to the means that God has given to be sure that people come to faith. Mm, yeah. And I think what, what you've done well for us here, I think what you've done well is that you know, we're, we're seeing not only the tapestry that John is weaving here, but also seeing how what John is, is weaving as a tapestry fits into the larger tapestry of all of God's revelation. When you're talking about how the, the blood of the blood that is throughout the scriptures is always pointing us toward the blood of Christ that we now receive in the sacrament of the altar. Again, this is a part of the, the larger tapestry that, that God is giving in his word, this proclamation, this testimony, not just that John's writing, but that, I mean, again, God is giving this, he is testifying to it throughout the scriptures. It really all fits together. So, Continuing then with what John gives us in this text, in verse 9, if we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater, for this is the testimony of God that he is born concerning his son. What's the, the testimony of men that we would receive that then is pointing toward the greater testimony of God? So I'm not sure. I've got, I think it's this. I think it's that um, John acknowledges that he is a man. Paul is a man, that Peter is a man, right? And, um, and as they preach, it's clearly the testimony of men there. Uh, it's not, I mean, just like Jesus is a man, that's not everything there is to say, right? But it's clearly the testimony of men. And now people are listening. People are giving them attention and turning to the faith. And now he, he gives you this, there's the logical move here. It's the lesser to greater argument. He doesn't sort of give a long explanation about how God's testimony has certain merits that makes it worth your attention simply says, we all understand that God is greater than a man in every possible way. Now I'm telling you, this testimony is actually a divine testimony. It's the testimony of the Holy Spirit, right? It's the testimony of God. Therefore, um, if you thought you believed me because you like the way I speak, well, that's one thing, but now realize that this is the spirit and the water and the blood. This is God himself bearing testimony. I think that if you go back to the blood, right? And you have to recognize the context, which is that, you know, your basic content of faith here is Jesus Christ is the son of God. So that blood, and you can go back to first John one, right? That's the blood of Christ, the son of God. And so that sort of ramps up everything. It says, it's not just my testimony. It's not just me, the preacher, me, the apostle, right? Um, what I proclaim to you is uh, 
is the the well nothing short of the voice of god right yeah. says to the disciples he who hears you hears me and he who hears me hears him who sent me yeah yeah well and i think going again to to the first chapter not only to what he says about the the blood of jesus cleansing us but even the way that he starts how he he talks about the things that we've touched and the things that we've seen and the things that we've heard, he, he and the other apostles were eyewitnesses and they give testimony in that sense. So if, if you're going to believe this eyewitness testimony of man, how much greater is it that God himself is the witness to these things? The Holy spirit is the witness to these things. Peter preaches that way in the book of acts. Even, even Peter in his second epistle talks about how, they beheld what happened on the transfiguration on the Mount of Transfiguration, but we have something more certain in the Word of God. So this it sounds like John is echoing that same thought. Yes, he's an eyewitness. Yes, he gives testimony, but the testimony of God is even greater, and that testimony agrees here with the water, the blood, and especially the Spirit. So then into verse ten: Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. And I'm just going to keep reading. This is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and the life is in this life is in his son. So we've got again testimony, faith, now the coming back to the idea of, of truth and lies. Help us into these two verses, verses 10 and 11. Sure. Um, I think the really interesting piece here is um right at the beginning, whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself, which um, is clearly John going back again to his understanding of faith and his really powerful understanding of faith. It's the faith that come, overcomes the world. And now it's the faith that um, bears witness, gives testimony to the truth about Jesus Christ. And that means that once that is received, um, a person is able to carry around, they carry that around with them. And that's exactly what we do, right? We receive the gospel. We receive the um, body and blood of Christ for our forgiveness that strengthens faith. That's a very, that's very consistent language for us, the strengthening of faith that, um, and that's the, I know, the sword and shield that protects us as we go about the normal life of the Christian, which is actually outside of the church in the world, right? In the world, though, that is overcome, we just keep circling with John, right? That is overcome by that faith in the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And I think, I think he really is, um, I lost the passage here, has the testimony himself. He's referring to the faith that a person then receives. Right? Hmm. Um, he could, in some ways, perhaps also be saying, look, you have the Holy Spirit. Um, the Holy Spirit is given when the gospel is preached. And the Holy Spirit lives in you, you know, sort of makes his home in, in your heart. And so you have that testimony in yourself. The caution, I guess the caution that I'm inclined to give is um, to read that passage as though we no longer need the spirit and the water and the blood, because now I have the testimony in myself. Yeah. And the, and the way to approach that is to maybe to just take a step back and remember John's broader context. He's writing to people. He says, you have the testimony in yourself. And now I need to explain all of this to you because there's some risk. You can lose that testimony. You're in a battle with the world. Yes, it's been overcome, but if you stop wielding the, the, the tools by which it is overcome, and if you turn away from the one who overcomes it for you, then, uh, you may find that it, it wins a battle, um, in your case. And so there is, I think there's that warning that belongs to this, but that the fact of that warning, um, does not prevent John and should not prevent us from saying, you have this, you have this testimony yourself. Listen to, um, to the voice of your faith that trusts in Christ when you face difficult things. It's, it's there. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, this is then, the, keep going, keep going. Sorry. Well, I was just going to, I was just going to look forward to you. Go ahead. No, no, keep keep going. Sorry, I I thought you'd I thought you were pausing. So no, keep 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 taking us into the verses. Okay, so then it continues. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has born concerning His Son. And so you, he has this. Whoever believes, and then it sort of fills them with this powerful faith. And then the whoever does not believe, and um, person who doesn't, and and the, you know this sort of sets up what he does at the very end of the passage that. This is, this is the deciding question. Do you believe? Um, and then you have everything 
or do you not believe? Yeah. And then you actually are, yeah, you have animosity with God. Mm. You've rendered God. And it, surely what that actually means is that you have uh, declared well, for your purposes that God is a liar, right? You can't turn God into a liar, but you can certainly give him that reputation. I think that's the right way to understand that. Yeah, yeah. So we've got about three minutes here, Dr. Corzine, as, as we wrap things up, you, you know, we, you talked about if we have this, this is the way John wraps it up in our text today. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. We've talked about how the content of this faith is to believe in Jesus as the son of God. John has been giving us that throughout this text and throughout this epistle. And here he really makes plain what that means in terms of the effects. I think you, you had used the term previously in our conversation, the concomitance of gifts, that all of these gifts come to this, you at the same time. Even if they're not the same gift, they all come to you at the same time. And it seems like John has something like that in mind there in verse 12. If you have the son, you've got it all. You've got you've got life. If you don't have the son, you don't have any of it, which is, is a warning, but it is also then the good news for us as Christians. Help us to wrap things up. Give us that last verse here, verse 12 in our text today. Sure. I mean, you've set that up nicely, right? Yeah. John is along the way. It's like he's setting up all kinds of tests to see if you're truly a Christian or not. Do you love God? Do you love the other Christians? Do you keep the commandments? Do you love his children? Do you love his son? Do you believe in his son? Right. Um, and then the foundation of all of that, is that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that you have that by faith. And then um, I think that the tests are important, that the Christian not become um, complacent and then uh, eventually turn against God for lack of need, right? But uh, if we live in this sort of conflict of whether we are truly Christians or not, um, then there is a, sort of the, I don't want to, I don't want to say that the wrong way. Um, if we live in the world, we will be faced with the reality that our lives do not correspond to how John describes a Christian. And so John says to that person, if you have the son, you have it all. You have the life. You have the Christian life. You have the life in the Holy Spirit. You have eternal life. And so as you live in the world and you feel uncertain, know, know that you can be absolutely certain because you have the son. And then the, you know, Whoever does not have the son does not have life. That's something that no one who needs to hear it actually hears, right? Mm. Um, that's, that, I think that's also for the Christians, that they know that uh, it is Jesus Christ who sustains them each day. The Reverend Dr. Jacob Corzine is Associate Professor of Theology at Concordia University in Chicago. He is also the Interim Dean of the College of Theology, Arts, and Humanities. He's been helping us today to study 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 to 12. Dr. Corzine, thanks for being our guest today. Thanks so much for having me. It was a pleasure. Whoever has the Son has life. This is you, dear Christian. You have the Son of God, and so you have all of his gifts. You have the very testimony of God himself. It is true. It is for you and for your salvation. Rejoice and be glad. Christ is yours. I am your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. If you have any questions about 1 John or the next two epistles that he writes, 2nd and 3rd John, which we will pick up later this week, please send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. It is always a joy to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.